McAfee is the device-to-cloud cybersecurity company and a trusted partner for federal government agencies, state and local governments, and education providers. Inspired by the power of working together, McAfee creates solutions that make our world a safer place. By building solutions that work with other companies' products, McAfee helps public sector entities orchestrate cyber environments that are truly integrated, where protection, detection, and correction of threats happen simultaneously and collaboratively. For more information, visit mcafee.com slash public sector. Welcome to Securiosity for another week. I am Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, ready to bring you the world's best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec news. This week we'll talk about tremendous OPSEC fails, Kaspersky's back to making noise, and app permissions that are still all over the place. This week we talked to Gordon Benoit of D3 Security, getting to why companies are all about this SOAR technology. We will also get to my favorite story of the week having to do with high school students hacking their own teacher's Wi-Fi. Great story, but first... A Chinese woman who briefly entered Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence last week had two Chinese passports and numerous electronic devices in her possession, including a thumb drive carrying malware, according to federal prosecutors. Yojing Zhang was found with four cellular telephones, a laptop, an external hard drive, and a thumb drive. Agents tested each device with a forensic test determining the thumb drive contained malware. According to the criminal complaint, Zhang was detained on Saturday after initially telling Secret Service guards that she was there to attend an event held by United Nations Chinese American Association. After Mar-a-Lago receptionist determined that no such event had been held, Secret Service agents took her into custody. Greg, so this is the biggest OPSEC fail of the year, yeah? Um, I mean, to date, I would say so. Um, really interesting that this woman just happened to be um, trying to get into Mar-a-Lago and reportedly used a language barrier, preyed on the fact that her last name matched somebody on the Mar-a-Lago membership and pretended not to speak English and then walked in and then once approached by Secret Service guards, decided that, oh, yeah, I speak English fine, and, oh, and just happen to have all of these electronic devices on her. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, weird. Weird. Yeah. What was going on there? Um, uh, I, it, it's amazing to me that a Mar-a-Lago receptionist was the one to catch this and not the Secret Service agents. That That's kind of scary. Is, this is their job. Yeah. Um, so I've seen a lot of... InfoSec people say, well, the thumb drive had malware and all thumb drives really have malware. Like, that doesn't necessarily mean that she's some Chinese agent. And then I say, again, let's talk about that um, little uh, treasure chest she had with her. Four cell phones, a laptop, an external hard drive, and a thumb drive. I don't know anybody that walks around with that much technology on them, especially when they're going to a beach club. Like, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Well, this was, th- th- there was obviously more than meets the eye there. And there's two Chinese passports, right? So I think just that is sort of suspicious. <laughs> like, exactly. You Who, know? I, I don't uh, – uh, look, I, I'm not well-versed in Chinese travel law, so I don't know, maybe there's a reason that citizens have more than one passport, but uh, I, I'm going to bet that there's also and Maybe uh, like a, a regular one and a diplomatic one or something, but I, I would assume, I mean, look, but why so many devices, right? Why wouldn't you just carry in the thumb drive? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it's super interesting. Yeah. Mind bender here. 
for the federal government to say is, and is anybody really watching what's going on? Like, uh, how 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 does this continually happen? Um, yeah, that's amazing. True. Awesome. So Kaspersky Lab on Wednesday announced an addition to its Android antivirus app that will flag commercial spyware. It's what privacy activists hope will be the first step toward the security industry taking so-called stalkerware more seriously. The snooping software has been linked to multiple cases of domestic abuse, but the Electronic Frontier Foundation's Ava Galperin says that to date, the antivirus world has been lax in combating it. She told CyberScoop, I look forward to seeing other antivirus vendors follow Kaspersky's lead. So, Jen, good move for Kaspersky here? I think it's a great move. I think it's something that we've needed. Um, you know, over the past several years, I've run into a couple companies that have been trying to, to solve this problem. And it's always from the standpoint of this happened to me. I had an ex-boyfriend or, or an ex-girlfriend or whatever it is that did this to me, um, which I think is um, a tougher sell um, in terms of raising capital and building a business versus like somebody like this um, doing it. Yeah. Um, what was really interesting about this story, too, is I did not realize how commoditized stalkerware was. If you read over uh, the findings here, um, a lot of this stuff is made by a handful of companies and then sort of franchised out almost. So uh, a lot of it looks the same, even though it has a, a different label on it. So that it, it's really interesting that it sort of lines up with the way that just like real like mid-level, low-level malware is put out there as well. Like yeah. a lot of this stuff is just so commodity. And that was something that I was not aware of. So it's really interesting that, you know, these companies don't have to take a huge technological leap to really stop this stuff. It operates in the same way that a lot of malware does. So you can detect it and prevent it in the same ways that you do if you know you have an antivirus and you're looking to stop malware so really good interesting move here from uh kaspersky and the eff yeah i mean i think it's um a smart move to install that if you are um single and dating so in other kaspersky news the legal battle between the russian company and the u.s government have been quieted but the court of public opinion is open for arguments. Kaspersky released an analysis arguing that, under Russian law, the company would not be subject to certain demands from authorities for data. U.S. officials and the other critics have long said the opposite, that the company, like others on Russian soil, could be compelled to cooperate with Russian intelligence agencies under a number of scenarios. A ban on Kaspersky products on U.S. federal networks remains in place despite numerous appeals by the company. So, Greg, is this report going to make any difference at all? For Kaspersky's business in the U.S., uh, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, because even though that this study or report or whatever you want to call it tries to refute what uh, the U.S. courts said, um, we talked to uh, Chris Krebs, the director of DHS's Cybersecurity and Infra uh, Infrastructure Security Agency, um, and we talked to him about this on Thursday, and he basically was like, look, guys, this is over. Um, I'm not really um, concerned with what they have to say. I don't necessarily believe what they have to say, but the ship has sailed. Like, Kaspersky is not going to do business, especially within the federal government, and um, the courts had their say here, and the Russian courts can have their say, but obviously the Russian courts don't have any jurisdiction in the U.S., so, like, 
moving on. So wait, does this mean I can't download the um, stalkerware antivirus thing? Oh, no. You could absolutely do so if you wanted to do that because that's a consumer product and there's really no ban in the U.S. on Kaspersky on a consumer level. But from a business, even on a business level, from a private sector business level, you could still use Kaspersky. But on uh, like a governmental level, like, no, that, that well, business just, is gone. Yeah, but just think about all of the government employees that, you know, bring their own device and may want to install it on their phone, but their phone has access to work documents and email. Yeah, no, it, it is. So that, that is still, no, that is, that is a, a very real problem. But I also imagine that, look, word has gotten around about, Kaspersky and their adversarial relationship with the U.S. government. So right. I would imagine that if you have smart IT folks inside your agencies, they're going like the the memo's out on Kaspersky. I mean, and you can go find plenty of other apps that do the same thing that right. Kaspersky does that you would do that you would want on a consumer level. Sure. So um, yeah, I I don't think that that is. A, a, a worry, something that uh, DHS is necessarily worried about, but at the same time, um, they're also not worried about this uh, finding from Kaspersky, and it seems to be a, oh, did you do your little report? Th that's great. You're still not allowed on our networks. So, yeah. So a Wandera analysis of 30,000 iOS applications shows that social networking, weather, and e-commerce apps that request access to lots of valuable information about users are still keeping up with those requests. 62% of iOS apps examined sought permission to a user's photo library, while 55% requested camera access, and 51% wanted to know a mobile user's location. While app developers say they sought user permissions for a number of reasons, typically for functionality or for marketing purposes, Wandera's research demonstrates the different risks mobile device users can be up against depending on what's in their pocket. While hackers may exploit Androids to steal financial information or mine for cryptocurrency, by abusing these permissions, iOS apps may abuse user trust for reasons that are less clear-cut. Jen, so tell me why a weather app wouldn't need access to your photos. I don't want my photos, but I can see them wanting the camera access so they can look at the weather in real time. I can see <laughs> also for for user location, obviously, I get it. Like, you're going yeah. to know the weather in your spot. Absolutely. But a lot of these apps, yeah, I, I don't. Why would an e-commerce app need access to my camera? Or why would it need to look at my photos? Like, it, it just goes into a lot of what... And if they can... If they can look at them, what can they do with them? Yeah, right. And it goes into data privacy. Yeah. Like, the, if I don't, I am very, very, um, I guess strict is a bad word, but I'm very, very hesitant to let any of these apps have permissions that don't need it. Like, if if my weather app were to ask me for my photos, no. Like, no, absolutely not. You're not getting it. And Apple, to their credit, has I think heard these complaints over the past couple of years because now I've noticed, you know, you have these apps and it'll say, well, when do you want the app to operate? Do you want the app always on? Do you want it to access your location when the app is open? Or do you not want it to do that at all? So Apple adds a little bit of granularity when it comes to stuff like this. But I, the, the apps that are still asking for these permissions here, like it's just mind-boggling that Apple really hasn't done more when privacy has been such a big thing for them over the past yeah. nine months that uh, I'm really surprised that these numbers aren't lower. 
That's interesting. Yeah, I'll have to look at the, my weather app later and see if it's accessing my camera. So for the second time in as many months, Toyota says it's been the target of malicious cyber activity. The Japanese automaker said Friday that unauthorized network access at its sales office in Japan had exposed the data of 3.1 million customers. In February, Toyota's Australia branch said it had been the victim of an attempted cyber attack, all of which... All of this comes of Vietnam's top hacking group, APT32, has been spearfishing multinational car companies. Toyota has not said who it thinks is behind the incident. So, Greg, Vietnam really wants to be a player in the car industry, yeah? Yeah. Um, Vietnam is using their hacking team to take whatever it is that they need and take out their competitors, it seems like. This is, I like it. This is, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I like it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's an interesting precedent. Um, instead of just uh, stealing secrets to, um, you know, taking data on customers and basically running like a, a, a rogue uh, uh, business here. When think of all the other uh, data privacy stuff that we've just talked about. You can follow the rules and get all the data that you need. There's no need to break into all of these <laughs> companies fair. illegally totally and, and take all of this yeah. stuff. If you're talking about IP, okay, we, we've seen that happen with China uh, and North Korea. And it, not that it's great, but it, it happens. This seems more just like data on customers. <laughs> Guys, just just play by the rules. You can get more data than you, you even thought was, was yeah. possible. It's it's okay. You don't need to go hacking for it. Just sign up some apps that ask for some faulty permissions, and then you'll be able to pull some data that you didn't think that uh, you could have access to. Just I mean, play it, by the rules. Yeah. It's, it's fine. It's really interesting to watch, though, how how one enters the car industry. So speaking of customer data... There's been a steady stream of news about malware designed to skim customer payment data during e-commerce transactions, but research by security vendor Group IB suggests that the problem is broader than the public might realize. JavaScript sniffers were lurking on 2,440 websites that receive roughly 1.5 million unique daily visitors. The malicious software essentially produces the same results as a credit card skimmer. Criminals inject a few lines of code onto target websites, then sweep up account numbers, names, addresses, and other information that's valuable on dark web markets. And it's not just Magecart, the best-known group of JS sniffers. Uh, there are 12 groups that have been in operation with Magecart, but Group IB says its researchers discovered a total of 38 JavaScript-sniffing families, at least eight of which have not been previously investigated in detail. Jen, we've talked a lot about Magecart, but obviously the problem goes way deeper here. So wait, 38 sniffer families? 38. Wow. So this pretty much means that any website we go on is potentially compromised. I don't know about any website, but if, like Amazon, I would guess, you're, you're, you're fine. Yeah. But but it's also a, a big feather in the cap for those bigger e-commerce companies where you look at Amazon, Jet, anything that's connected to a, like, top-of-the-line retailer, Target, Walmart. Um, yeah, I mean, they still get compromised, too. Right. They get compromised, but they don't have code yeah. injected into their payment platforms. Like, that's that's pretty big right there. Um, but, did I, but did I read that, um, and please delete this if I didn't, um, did I read that it's in Shopify-powered websites? So I don't. Uh, I, I'm not sure on that, but the reason the reason why it, it's smart to bring that up is it 
because this story is legitimately about the supply chain when it comes to mm-hmm. third-party software and third-party code that is on top of your site. I mean, look, this is the trade-off. This is a hard thing to deal with because if you're a small to medium business, or even if you're not, if you're just uh, a bigger company, like I think about the the housewares mage cart incident, the OXO that uh, we talked about a few months ago. OXO isn't a small company, but at the same time, they don't have their own in-house development people. They're they're like any company going to some other B2B company and having devs write their e-commerce platforms or just buying something and having some devs hook it up. There's nobody really overseeing any of that. So unless you want to hire your own dev shops, which again gets back to like the Amazon.coms and the Jet.coms of the world, this is something that you're going to have to watch out for. So it's either spend money and bring in your own devs to build everything on your own and make sure that that's secure and that's not always a guarantee. Or you can go out to these third parties and spend all that money and it might not be as expensive as hiring these devs, but you might end up having you know some compromises in the long run because nobody did a code audit to figure out that there was you know malicious JavaScript pulling people's card payments. So look, it's it's an extremely tough problem and I think that this research really puts it at the forefront that, okay, it's not just Magecart. Like, y- you need to watch out because there's a host of different uh, groups that are going after your payment sites and it, it's not just like worrying about like the Russians coming after you. Like, this is a problem that criminals all over the place right. go after yeah. and uh, you need to find a fix. We could probably gin something up today and and make it work. And I mean, I think it it goes back to for consumers, just don't go to the well-known website. Don't try to save like 10% or 25% or something by going to someone you never heard of. Right. So this week's Facebook disaster. Researchers at UpGuard have identified two database exposures where operators of a third-party apps connected to Facebook were storing data about people in AWS's S3 buckets configured for public access. One app was run by Mexico-based Culture Colectiva, and the other was at the pool, which has been defunct for several years. Both S3 buckets had been secured by Wednesday. The Silicon Valley-based security company pulled no punches in describing what was at stake. As Facebook faces scrutiny over its data stewardship practices, they have made efforts to reduce third-party access. But as these exposures show, the data genie cannot be put back in the bottle. So Greg, what else do you know? So I think with this, um, it, it's not just it's not just this week with uh, an S three <laughs> bucket. Just as we sat down to tape, Cisco's Talos released some research that found the social media network um, was hosting dozens of groups that serve uh, online marketplaces and exchanges for cyber criminals. Some of these groups have managed to remain on Facebook for up to eight years and in the process acquired tens of thousands of group members. Talos found 74 groups whose Facebook members promised to carry out all different types of cybercrime, including trading stolen bank information, account credentials, and email spamming tools and services. These groups had 385,000 members. Jen, I mean, I, I... it, 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 the Facebook fire of the week, like it, it's it's amazing. I to mean, me. this was a big one, and you would just think that at this point in time, Facebook would employ people that are continuously searching the groups to make sure stuff like this isn't happening. See, and here's the thing: I know that I know for a fact there are 
very, very smart people that are very, very well respected working at Facebook in their security division. It goes further than that with this. Those people in the security division are not watching out for these groups. That's not their job. This no. is a, this is a content moderation. It is. Thing. Yeah. This is this is in the same bucket that the disinformation that we see from different nation states. That that sort of propaganda. That's in here with this, and I don't understand how they can continually be so bad at this. It's it's mind-numbing to me. Like, really, the media, I feel like, has become Facebook's default content moderation platform. It, there's a story, if not weekly, daily, on some just abhorrently poor piece of content or group being put on Facebook, and they knock it down whenever an outlet publishes a story. And it's like, where's our check? Like, you have all the money in the world, so where's our check if if we're doing your jobs for you? I mean, this is a matter of just searching on keywords. This is not, like, it's top secret and it's, like, dot, 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 and there's no name here. These are groups that have names that have something malicious in their right. titles. Right, and what's crazy about it is if you read the Talos research, they started looking at stuff, and they only found uh, a certain number of groups, like I want to say maybe 10. And then because they kept searching for those groups, Facebook's algorithm unearthed more because they were like, hey, we see you like you know, Cyber <laughs> Cyber Criminals Anonymous. Would you like to go to the Super Elite Cyber Criminals Anonymous group I love it. too? Yeah. Which, like, their algorithm is, is doing the work for them. Like, <laughs> so if Talos researchers can use the algorithm to find it, why can't anybody inside Facebook figure this stuff out? It, like, I'm, I'm, like, at a loss for words. As far as the it cloud is. thing goes and the data exposure there, I mean... This is what Chris Vickery does. This is what UpGuard does. Um, I'm I'm not surprised by that story at all. I'm sure we'll have another story like it in a week or two where it's just social media data that's just out there for the taking. We'll report on it. They'll close it and go, thank you. We'll be we'll be better in the future. And they won't. And boring. it'll just be a yeah, circle. And it'll be boring sad. and whatever. Well, what, really what's sad is just it's literally dumpster fire after dumpster fire for Facebook. No, right it really now. is. Like, I, yeah. I cannot believe that it's just this pipeline of just awfulness that's that's coming from them daily now it seems like fix 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 it if you can't fix it i mean it was funny Uh, zuckerberg wrote uh an op-ed i think was it earlier this week talking Mm -hmm. about the need for regulation uh if you keep having stories like this it's going to go beyond regulation and you're going to be broken up like that's really the only solution (laughs) at this point it's unbelievable so a small sticker caused a big problem for tesla's A security vulnerability in Tesla firmware made it possible for outsiders to take remote control over a vehicle's steering and push it into an opposite lane, according to Tencent's Keen Security Lab. The computer experts discovered that by painting small stickers on a roadway, they could fool the autopilot on a Tesla Model S75 into following a path the driver did not intend. The technique exploited the car's autopilot 
protocol, which quickly collects data about a vehicle's surroundings based on radar signals, cameras, and other sensors. By placing stickers over road markings, the Keen team caused the Tesla to move to the wrong side of the road. Tesla fixed the primary flaw with a series of security patches issued in 2017 and 2018, both of which they released before the group reported the research to them. Both of which we released before the group reported this research to us, a company spokesman said in an email. So this is different than just injecting code. Yeah, um, this is really interesting in the fact that it shows the blend of like cybersecurity and physical security. Yeah. Where, hey, this is like you can hack something with a sticker. Like that's just uh, kind what of this amazing. Is. It, it it's amazing. And it reminds me of like just some of the other ways that security professionals think about ways to hack stuff all the time. Like when we talk about pen testers, uh, pen testers, I mean, yes, they're amazing when it comes to finding holes in code, but a lot of what they do has to do with like breaking into physical stuff as well. And that stuff, a lot of the times, even though it can be just small stuff like, hey, I'm going to put a sticker on this or watch what a can of compressed air can do. Um, It's fascinating how much the physical security really does factor into cybersecurity. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that this report went public now, even though that, you know, the patches were fixed in 2017 and 2018. But, yeah, autonomous vehicles, it's – while I think that we're eventually going to get there, I think stuff like this shows that we're uh, further away than everybody thinks. So, wait, when do we think this happened? If there was a patch in 2017, does this mean it happened in 2017? Um, I think that the research was done in 2017 where Tencent probably did it, went to Tesla and went, uh, look what we can do with these stickers, um, then turned around and, you know, went through a disclosure platform. This was a little bit longer of a disclosure to the public, but at the same time, I think that that's okay because we're talking about physical safety. Right. So there needs to be some time to fix it and go through testing and make sure that everything is all right. But yeah, I'm kind of surprised that it took this long to uh, get out there. But hey, at the same time, really, really interesting research. And again, shows that (laughs) it's it's not all code. Yeah, really interesting. So to talk about funding now, two companies to highlight. Uh, DeepWatch, a St. Petersburg, Florida, and Denver, Colorado-based provider of intelligence-driven managed security services, closed a $23 million Series A funding this week. The round was led by ABS Capital Partners, and the company intends to use the funds to accelerate R&D for its machine learning security analytics platform. And cybersecurity startup Screen, which for some reason is spelled with a Q, recently raised $14 million in a Series A of funding led by Greylock Partners, along with participation from Y Combinator, Alvin Capital, and Point9. The San Francisco-based company helps developers monitor and protect their web applications from vulnerabilities and cyber attacks. Screen was founded in 2015 by Apple's former security veterans Jean-Baptiste Aviat and Pierre Betuin. They are very French, and apologies if I did not get those <laughs> names right. So, uh, Jen, which one of these is interesting to you? So I think that um, Screen's really interesting in that they've got a, a sort of a free um, business model. There's a free version um, for smaller companies to use, um, you know, which I think is takes another step to make us more secure. Yeah. Um, look, application security is more and more becoming a thing that uh, companies need to 
watch out for as they go through this quote unquote digital transformation that we're in when it comes to yeah. the economy. I mean, we just had a story earlier this week about a popular um, code platform, uh, Ruby SaaS or Bootstrap SaaS. Forgive me if I, I got that wrong. I believe it's called Bootstrap SaaS. But um, I think uh, the code, there was a duplicate code base of this framework that was downloaded like 28 million times or something like that. And it just had a wide open back door that was closed. I mean, who is watching over all of this code that gets reused over and over and over and yeah. over again? So companies like Screen, um, hey, uh, app devs, everybody wants uh, apps, Every whether it's internal, external, consumer-facing, business-facing, mm-hmm. whatever, there's underlying code in that. And if we have more eyes watching that code, I think it's for the better. Did you see anything special about DeepWatch? To me, it just seemed like another company doing this and they just added in the buzzword of ml yeah uh, i mean i mean i i don't know a lot about uh deep watch i know abs is based in baltimore right so the funding Mm -hmm. is a little bit local so maybe with the funding being a little bit local they see some government use in it but yeah machine learning security analytics platform uh I mean, welcome to the neighborhood. You have about 300 (laughs) neighbors. So uh, have fun carving out your market share there. (laughs) Now to our interview with Gordon Benoit talking about SOAR. Interesting conversation that we had out at RSA. Check it out. Okay, we are speaking with Gordon Benoit, president of D3 Security. Gordon, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Talk to us a little bit about your background and how you got started in cybersecurity and some of the formative experiences that made you want to move down this path. Well, my background is analytics and big data. So before D3, I had a data warehousing company. Okay. Basically, we took silos of data, extracted, transformed the data, loaded into a huge repository, and built analytics for big companies, for management executives to, to find patterns. And when I went into security and I started D3, I saw the same issues, a lot of silos uh, and the ability and the need to amalgamate that data, correlate that data, and in our case, SOAR, um, automate some of the response to the alerts. So tell us a little bit more about D3. So D3, are, uh, we're focused on SOAR, so security, orchestration, automation, response. Mm-hmm. And really what we do is we focus on two big problems with our industry, within the industry. Mm-hmm. The, the work uh, force problem and the workload problem. So the workforce problem um, is our customer just can't find enough experienced SOC analysts and investigators. And then the, the workload problem is that there's way too many alerts. So they're overwhelming. So, when we, we, so our SOAR, Security Orchestration Automation Response, the orchestration um, helps with the workforce problem and how, that, how that's related is the playbooks. So all the SOAR products in the market, including D3, have playbooks. Okay. And the playbooks basically are the heart of the SOAR product. So they guide the SOC team through mediation and, and how, and so you can take basically a junior SOC analyst, first day on the job, mm-hmm. and you can take one of our playbooks, which are basically built based on our experience responding to attacks and our customers. So they'll guide in a step-by-step process the junior SOC analyst on day one how to remediate an event, and they'll do it 
um, as though they're a sock, you know, a sock veteran. That's where the playbooks come in, and they help scale the sock team. So you can take, you can't find experienced mm-hmm. sock analysts. You can take these junior sock analysts and and infuse them with, with experience from almost from, almost from day one, and make sure that they're following best practices and your standard operating procedures. So that's how we help with the work force problem, and then the workload problem is that really the automation and and, and soar. So by automating, we're able to. Um, have them handle more, advance more poorly, reduce the false positives. So I, I, I can give you an example if you want. Sure. Sure. So, so one of our customers um, was overwhelmed with phishing, just phishing uh, events. Okay. Phishing alerts. So before they implemented D3, they were doing everything pretty well manually. They were cutting and pasting from, in their case, PhishMe, ThreatGrid, and so on and so forth. And it was taking them about 30 minutes to resolve uh, an event, a phishing event reported by their their, their uh, end users. They implemented D3, we automated most of the work, and we got it down to six minutes. So we freed up about 40 hours a week in their song. So they didn't, it's not that um, they're not gonna, you know, have, they can still hire all the same amount of sock engineers, but they're more productive now. So now they can work on, you know, more important true positives, more important events, real events. So that's how we help them um, by just automating one event type, just fishing, and we freed up 40 hours. So wow. are you able to um, basically update your playbook based on sort of everything you're seeing, but then everything you're seeing at like other client sites as well? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So the playbooks um, are dynamic, and then they're very easy to change. So you can, in, in a matter of minutes, you can actually change an entire playbook. So the example is that, you know, that our customers come to us, that they, they run through an event, so they have um, an attack. They re- they respond to the attack through the playbooks, and then at the end they get together the whole team, including other departments, compliance, legal, mm-hmm. and they determine what worked and what didn't work, and then they change it. So root cause and corrective action um, is, is is very important. So the ability to adapt is extremely important. So a very flexible playbook, flexible architecture uh, helps with that. Yeah, I was going to ask, are you taking what your individual customers are doing with each of those playbooks and then reworking it back into the product? Or do you leave it up to your customers to be like, okay, here's your playbook and you tailor it the way that you want and then that that's just sort of that? It's in both. So we're um, obviously, if we're working with a client, we start off with our inventory playbooks. We have hundreds of playbooks. Okay. We walk in mm-hmm. with our inventory and then we modify it. Sometimes they'll do something and we'll say that's very clever. Actually, that's very, very good. And then we'll embed it into the playbook. And so that when the next release, so we do quarterly releases, the next release, that modified playbook will be available to all of our customers. And we also are vertical based. We have vertical playbooks, banking, retail, utilities, healthcare. Um, and um, so we also are able to create these, these vertical playbooks and that. We, rely on our customers uh, a bit for that to, to give us that knowledge of what the, and, and what they're facing okay the issues they're facing so what's unique about d3 compared to other companies that are involved with soar is the uh architecture you know we're uh very 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 um, strong in architecture so our system has it's flexible so as, as, as you as you mentioned you know can we adapt so with uh-huh. our playbook because 
when we, we went to the market, we, we saw there's a, a lot of products in the market were basically libraries of Python scripts. So you like Python spaghetti. It's almost impossible to maintain. Okay. So we took more of a architectural approach, more of a software approach. So we embedded, we created all the actions through code. So you can literally drag and drop an action on this decision tree and in minutes with no Python, no coding. So we avoided that trap. So it's architecturally more flexible and um, also it's more structured. So every field that's, that's, that's embedded or ingested into D3, it goes to a specific element in D3. So you can search whether it's an IP address or hash, you can actually search on that automatically. And that's where you get the contextual information and the correlation. So more flexible and structured. Um, that, that's, 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 and we go from SOC 1, Tier 1, Tier 2, 3, and 4. Well, probably one of the only product that can move from um, remediation to investigation. And we extend out to other departments, like legal, compliance, privacy. Um, so that those are part of our, uh, our strengths. So what does that mean exactly when you say you expand out to them? So I'll give you, I'll give you an example. So usually the hottest incident um, type that creates the demand for store right now, it changes, but right now it's fishing. But we had a customer call us up because they ran afoul of their um, regulatory agencies within their industry and their audit and board of directors. So they had to, in 30 days, because they weren't documenting their response properly. They weren't demonstrating that they were following best practices. So they gave us, they, they, they purchased D3 and we had 90 days to bring it up and running, not just for the SOC, tier one, two, three, and four, but all the actions that different departments like like um, HR and legal and the compliance group would have to do. So if it's a data loss prevention event, you can just a data, a data from a DLP system. So you'll probably involve the privacy group, probably involve HR, and you may be involved in legal. So all the tasks that they need to do are embedded into the playbook. That's what I mean by we extend out to those other departments. Because um, we're seeing more and more pressure. The, 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 the part, um, the, a bit of a hole right now is documenting. Everyone's responding to incidents, but the documentation. I mean, it's a bit extreme for the reg uh, to, to run mm -hmm. a file like reg reg regulatory yeah. and have them force you to, uh, to uh, the board of directors force you to, to build a system in 90 days so that they can demonstrate to the regulatory authorities that you can respond properly going forward. That's a bit extreme and, of course, not recommended. You're waiting for them to come in and, and, and force you to do it. But um, that part of it, documenting all the steps you've taken within the SOC to make sure you comply with regulations, best practice, so on and so forth, that's becoming more and more important. And that's sort of automated a little bit through your system? We've automated compliance, basically. Yeah. So we've, we've, we've because we're structured, everything is, uh, every, everything's documented and everything's structured. So we're able to hit a button at the end and they're able to document and show that they've complied with um, uh, best practices, standard operating procedures, and all the regulatory uh, requirements within that, uh, that certain member. No, no, no. I was just saying, where do you think store is going? Because I kind of feel like it's it's sort of a, a newer, sort of Gartner buzzwordy kind of thing. Where do you think it, the future of it's going? I think right now, so if you look at SOAR version, uh, SOAR 1, version uh -huh. 1, so I think it's automation. The big, big problem right now is automation, and that's, that, that's where most of 
the requirement is. Um, so that's version one. Version two, they're going to be demanding more. They're going to be demanding that you do better correlation, that you do thread hunting, uh -huh. um, and um, and you know a buzzword: artificial intelligence, machine learning. So we're working on that, but you know. Uh, we're going to work with our customers and, and, and help build that, and we're not going to say it's going to solve every problem, yeah. but it will reduce the false positives. So I think that better correlation um, and, and and algorithms, for lack of you know lack of a better word, algorithms to help reduce the false positives, um, and, and and that's where it's going. A little more intelligence built into the platform. That would be version two. Got it. So if I'm a company. How can I tell my security architects and professionals to prepare for how to deploy this type of technology in my enterprise? Yeah, that's a good question. So what we do is we go up to customers and we say, Let, let's work through a use case. Okay. So what is your biggest issue right now? Where would you get the best payback? So right now I can tell you most times it's, it's uh, fishing. Mm -hmm. um, but so let's build out that use case. So. You build up the use case, you build up the playbooks, and then you look back to see where we can get the, the data, which security systems do we need to ingest data from to build up this use case. Build that out, do it you know, 30, 60 days, prove to the executive team um, that there is payback, and then add to that. So you've already integrated a few systems, now do the second one, whether it's ransomware or a day loss prevention event, then do that one and you keep adding to the platforms that you integrate with and you're doing it and getting a good return on investment. You're not boiling the ocean and you're not waiting a year to roll this out. That's how we, we approach it and so far it's been quite effective. Gordon, so we end all of these interviews on a random question. So what is something that you've tried that you'll never ever try again? As far as... Uh, Security or the company or no, just randomly in your life doesn't have to be security uh, at all. I think um, probably surfing with my two boys. <laughs> not not too successful no, not with that. Successful. That I I really wrenched my back and I was out Yikes. for two days on the vacation. So oh no. Uh, yeah, I just uh, they they did it and they're teenagers and they were so good. You know, right off the bat, I said, oh, okay, I'll try it. I mean, don't be that hard. <laughs> Well, it's hard. I mean, <laughs> I just blew my back out. So that's one thing. Okay. I think I'll do it again. Okay. So the last CEO of my company, um, Issa, always tells the stories that every time they go surfing, somebody always steps on a shark. And I just, and I thought, is that I, I, typical? Yeah. And he says, it's very typical of like, you would typically will accidentally step on a shark. You may or may not know it. And I'm like, where are you going? <laughs> wow. Pass. Pa yeah, okay, pass. It. Whether it's throwing it. throwing a back out or stepping on a shark, like, pass. No. Uh, yeah. I'll pass on both. All right, Gordon, really appreciate you coming aboard and speaking with us, and hopefully we'll talk to you in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. So thanks again to Gordon for sitting down with us out at RSA. And, Jen, this is by far my favorite story of the week. Let's hear it. So this comes from uh, the CBS affiliate in New York City. I'm just going to read this to you. It's just fantastic. 
Police are calling what happened at Secaucus High School illegal, but also ingenious. They said two 14-year-old boys were arrested last Thursday for hacking into the school's Wi-Fi, making it impossible for teachers to give any tests or teach any lessons that relied on the Internet. It was the talk of the school Tuesday. Secaucus School Superintendent Jennifer Montesanto confirmed the story in a statement by saying our Wi-Fi connection was compromised over the past week, and we have determined that the two students may have been involved in the disruption of our system. The question, of course, is how did the two kids do it? Police told uh, CBS that students used a private company to hack in and disable the school's Wi-Fi. Um, basically, it looks like they DDoSed the school's Wi-Fi system in order to not take any tests. That's amazing. Um, I would have to say that 14-year-old myself, looking back on that, I would think that these kids are awesome. It's like, it's really the equivalent of, like, pulling the fire alarm when I was a kid. It's funny also that the descriptions for all of this, um, they don't seem to grasp what exactly a DDoS does. Like, well, I mean, that's I, I, I a little mean, bit above the educational level of high school administrators and teachers. Well, I mean, just even the way that this story is written, too. Students use a private company to hack in and disable the school's Wi-Fi. Like, I doubt... Like some New York, some local New York startup is taking a phone call from two 14-year-olds going, yeah, here's the IP address for my, my, uh, my high school's network. Can you guys send a DDoS attack over to them? Got it. No problem. We'll get that out to you, sir. Payment, please, please pay us and we'll get that out. Like, no, they probably went online and paid somebody for a private booter and, and turned it on the, the school's network. Amazing. <laughs> like, oh, that would be amazing if it does turn out to be like some private company that's like, oh, we thought we were doing pen testing for the school. And no, it was these two kids that dis- that actually just didn't want to take their history test or something like that. Yeah, that's amazing. so great. And hey, look. Kids, if you're listening, these schools, here. here's the cybersecurity workforce. This is how it happens. Hack your school when you're 14 and turn around and, you know, yeah. InfoSec professionals laugh about it and go, hey, kids, actually, you know what you're talking about here. Come get a job. Guaranteed these two kids will have jobs in InfoSec. In, oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. From now. So, all right. That is it for this week. Thanks again. And as always, stay curious. Stay curious.